I'm Jeff Cohen. Jody Samuels is an author, speaker, supermom, special needs advocate, and world traveler. She's also a not-for-profit leader who founded Jewish International Connection in order to provide community for Jews living abroad. Jody also started Jody's Voice as a means to inspire people to live their lives to the fullest and overcome limiting perspectives. I'm really excited to hear about her journey, so let's get started. Jody, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you so much for having me on your show. And your story actually starts in South Africa, is that correct? It certainly does. <laughs> this isn't a Brooklyn accent. <laughs> <laughs> we picked up on that right away. So tell us about where you were born and raised. So I grew up in Johannesburg. Like, I call it Jewish Johannesburg, where everybody wanted to be like the Goldbergs. Instead of the Joneses, everybody wanted to be the Goldbergs. <laughs> and we looked the same, dressed the same, acted the same. But I did not grow up in a religious home. However, we lived in the heart of the Jewish ghetto. And I guess my like Jewish observance meant that I went to public school. I wasn't allowed to go to school on Jewish holidays. I was allowed to go to the movie house. I just wasn't allowed to go to school. And Friday night, we weren't allowed to go out, but we were allowed to say Kiddush as fast as we could. And the family would go congregate in front of TV, in front of our famous shows, but it would be really bad if I went out after dinner. So it, you know, that was the kind of home I grew up in. And we went to shul basically on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. So you celebrated some of the holidays. You did some of those customs throughout the year? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, Pesach would be, well, let's say Manish Tanah and eat. <laughs> and, you know, Shabbat was let's say Kiddush and watch TV. But yeah, there was definitely, you know, we did have some level of observance. You know, there was no bread in the house on Pesach. Were there, was the house kosher Pesach? No, but we weren't allowed to eat bread. So there was definitely an awareness of the Jewish holidays, but it wasn't with something with knowledge. It was just function of the environment. We knew it was there. So did you know any observant families or have any perspective on observant Judaism when you were little? So having grown up in Glen Hazel, which is like the heart of the South African Jewish ghetto, I lived in a neighborhood where there were a lot of religious people. And when I was younger, there weren't so many religious people in Johannesburg. But as I became older, more and more people started turning towards religion. But my mother taught at the Jewish day school. And she was a secular studies teacher. And we were the family on a Saturday morning that would be getting in our car. And all these kids would walk past and they'd go, Good Shabbos, Mrs. Newman. <laughs> And I just looked at these kids, and instead of being embarrassed, I just thought, oh, they're the God Squad, the nerds, the Yami Army. I mean, I had many words for them, and they were definitely not my kind of people. <laughs> but there was like my knowledge, you know, I saw them, I didn't really interact with them. Right. But so did you end up having a bat mitzvah, getting a, a Jewish education along the way, or was it completely secular? No, no Jewish name, no bat mitzvah, no anything, <laughs> nothing at all. But I did go to summer camp um, with like Beitar summer camp, which is probably the most formative part of my Jewish identity, if not religious identity. At least that gave me some sense of Jewish identity and Israel perspective. So as someone who's sitting in New Jersey, you hear lots of stories about how safe or dangerous Johannesburg might be, and particularly for Jews. So what was it like for you, and what was your experience? Well, I'm still traumatized by my experiences. So many, many years later, South Africa famously became known as the crime capital of the world. And, you know, you live in South Africa, and it's like two worlds, because on one hand, it looks like this picture-perfect place, the land of milk and honey and opportunity, and then there's like the huge walls and electrified fencing and security guards. But I personally was a victim of being held up at gunpoint. Um, you know, my father was held up. My brother was a Lots of people, you know, were held up. We had home invasions when I was a kid. And those things really, really impacted me. Still to this day, I have fears. <laughs> and <laughs> the week before I immigrated, I was held up at gunpoint for Aye. my car. And that really reminded me why I was leaving. <laughs> okay, so speaking of leaving, does this happen as you get ready for college? What's the point where you leave South Africa? 
Um, you know, South Africans, certainly of my generation, grew up with this narrative. You know, in other countries, you sort of finished school, went to college, and then figured out your life. In South Africa, you went to school, went to college, and immigrated. That was like the Jewish parents' dream. Your, pa your kids should get out the country. But I um, was already engaged, and I was actually married, and we had planned to move overseas for the purpose that we wanted to earn money, which is part of my journey, but my husband was a doctor and we wanted to earn dollars, pay off his student loans so we could make money, so we could make Aliyah, and we were going overseas. There was a way that like South African doctors could get into many countries, earn money, get visas, get citizenship, and get out of South Africa. So it was very much part planned. But I think for me, my decision was very final the day after my father was held up. And he was like, get out the country. I've got no hope for this country. A week later, he was like, South Africa is still the best country in the whole world. <laughs> Don't leave in such a hurry. But I was done. So, and then I was held up, and then a hundred. I was a thousand percent done. <laughs> and so, you just brought your husband into the story, saying you you met him and got married very young. I think you said around eighteen. So, just just back up for a moment. How does he come into your life? Where do you meet him? And how how does the marriage journey begin? So we have a very crazy story. But I had become religious when I was sixteen, and I can tell you more more about that. I'd well started becoming involved in religion. I shouldn't say I became religious. And I landed up going to Israel for a gap year after high school. I swung the pendulum from religious to not religious. I landed up a long story and I'm happy to share it, but getting engaged to a guy and we were gonna live in a caravan. Um <laughs> in outside Hebron, I didn't, I don't think I really understood what I was getting into. It all just sounded wow and idealistic and I was all of 18 and, you know, everything sounded great that year. And I was a little confused because I was getting a lot of pressure from my parents who, as far as they were concerned, I'd been kidnapped by a cult. I was going to marry this like religious guy and he didn't speak much English and we were going to live in a caravan and they were going to have poor religious children you know that would be dirty with snotty noses they like had every stereotype and they were vehemently against my decisions but I was 100% sure what I was doing and I had enrolled in Shirut Lumi which is national service in Israel and I was doing what I was going to do and I met a friend on the famous Ben Yehuda Street, and I was telling her I'm a little bit confused because everybody's giving me <laughs> negative feedback, I guess. And while I was talking to her, this guy walked up to me and he said, excuse me, do you speak English? And I said, yeah. And he was like, all good South Africans. He was like, oh, you're South African. And... We started talking, and there's a whole story there, but that's how I met my husband. He said he just wanted directions, and I've been giving them for 28 years. <laughs> so, <laughs> so wait, let me try to unpack a few of these details that you, that you just there's brought up. There's a lot, yeah. <laughs> Let's try to get these in order. When you meet your husband, is he already observant? You said that for you, you were, you were dabbling in around 16, yes, no, trying to figure it out. What, what is he doing at the time that you meet? So... He had been influenced by Rabbi Kivatatz. When he was in medical school, he heard him speak, and Rabbi Tatz is a doctor. And Rabbi Tatz had opened his eyes to like Judaism, and he had started learning, but he had never really kept Shabbat before. He was 21 when he came to Israel for his first time. This was the trip where he met me. He was there to do a medical elective at Hadassah Hospital. And he says that he went to the Kotel, had never been to Israel before, put a note in the wall, said he wanted to meet his wife. And when you go to head office, you get service. <laughs> so <laughs> two days later, he asked for directions. He met me and he asked for my number. And when I say I was confused, I was really confused. So <laughs> when he told me who he was, I was like, you know, I know another medical student. Do you know? And he said, yes. 
um, he's my brother. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's the guy. If I wasn't going to be like with Moshe, then, you know, this tall, dark, handsome medical student. So I thought maybe I'll just speak to Gavin just in case mm-hmm. it doesn't work out for the guy I'm engaged to, mind you. <laughs> yeah, plan B. So I sp- Yes, this is my plan B. That was all happening, all unraveling there on the street corner. And he asked for my number and I crossed out my number. It was in those days, there was no such a thing as WhatsApp. You had to give a real telephone number. Mm -hmm. And then I gave him a wrong number at first. And then I was like, just in case. And he called me and he says he knew within two hours that I was the person. It took me a little longer. Three hours. But... (laughs) Yeah, it took a much longer than that. I was clearly indecisive at that stage of my life. And we went out and, you know, I guess there was something familiar. He was South African. He was much more familiar to me. We went out a few times in Israel. And then I went back to South Africa supposedly for two weeks to sort out some stuff before I was going to start my sh- national service. And in those days... Moshe, the guy I was engaged to, as I said, there was no email and whatever else. And to speak on the phone was so expensive. He gave me all these letters, one for the plane, one for each day of my trip. And I got to South Africa. And I remember very distinctly, it was a Friday morning. And the plane landed. I was sitting in my parents' lounge room. And a very South African scenario. But the maid walked in with a tray with tea. And it was like... That, even though it sounds like a mundane moment, it was in that moment, I felt like I'd been um, an actress in a play. Mm -hmm. And now the curtains had come down and I was in my real life. And I was like, I can't do this. I can't be with Moshe. I can't go live in a caravan. I don't know what I was thinking. And I broke up with him. Gavin had gone backpacking in Europe. He called me and we continued our dating. And I guess here we are. (laughs) Okay, so it starts working out with with Gavin. What kind of conversations are you having about the type of life you want to lead, where you're going to live, how Judaism is going to play into it? What are those conversations like? So on the second date that we went out, well, I thought we were the second hangout, he called it the second date, I told him that I wanted to have a life that had two criteria to it. I said I wanted a home like the Fucklers, who were this Holocaust family who had um, influenced me so much, and they always had an open home. And this was something that really was an absolute core that I one day wanted in my life. I wanted, she, you know, she would always be calling for Shabbat guests when she was in Israel. She had called the absorption centers and the yeshivas and seminaries. And she literally would cry if she didn't have Shabbat guests. So I wanted Shabbat guests. There was, I wanted an open home just like them. And I said, I wanted to live in Israel. Those were the two things I was absolutely adamant on that I wanted in my life. And he said, yes. That sounds great. Me too. So we say we agreed to those values on the second date or I didn't realize it was a date, but he did. Okay. But I imagine that doesn't all start happening immediately. So where do you settle down once you're married? Where does that part of your life begin? Okay. Well, settle down's a long journey. We were truly, <laughs> Where's the first stop? <laughs> we were truly wandering Jews. So as I said, we wanted to move to Israel and we had no money and it was the early 90s and to be a doctor was... There were so many Russian doctors at the time, and there were no jobs. So as a doctor, you can go work in these really, really outback places. I don't know if you've ever seen Northern Exposure or one of those where the doctor's the only link to life, and he's your connection for the mail and the pharmacy, and he is the connection to these remote communities. So Gavin got jobs in many different remote places but the very very first place we moved was as we had been married just four months and we moved to a place called Invercargill which is right at the South Island of New Zealand where you know we squeezed grapes for grape juice on Shabbat and made our own bread and I can tell I could write a book about Jody's mikvah experiences (laughs) as a newly married woman going in like the South Antarctic Ocean and Many crazy stories. So we went from New Zealand and then we went to Tasmania, which is a little island 
of Australia. And from there, we went to outback places in far north Queensland, like northern Australia. And then we went to a place called the Gold Coast, which is like the Miami of Australia. And from there to Sydney. And then we won green cards, which is the opportunity where 50,000 people a year win green cards and you get the opportunity to live in the US. We thought we'd go for a year. A year turned into 15 years. <laughs> and finally, we made it to Israel. <laughs> so just thinking about these remote places that you were living, when you hear Jewish people talk about travel, they always say, I have to figure out where's the nearest shul and how am I going to get kosher food? <laughs> so I have to believe that as hard as it is for us when we're going to places like Miami or anywhere else that, that has the infrastructure, you're going to places that don't have any of this. So what's it like trying to live an observant life and the food and the shul and, and the steps that you're trying to do given where you're living? So firstly, I think one of the biggest blessings you get out of that is you're extremely, extremely aware that you're Jewish. And sometimes you forget that. So we'd be living in the absolute middle of nowhere. And <laughs> there weren't that many kosher products to begin with on a kosher list in New Zealand. Not many of them made them down to where we were. And we lived a very vegetarian diet, but we were very passionate about who we were. And then, you know, you can live in Manhattan and, or you live in Jerusalem and you just take it for granted. You don't even realize the power of it. Um, the advantage is I've since traveled to 87 countries, many of wow. them off the beaten track, 50 with my kids, traveling kosher and Shomer Shabbat on a budget. And we pro I probably would not believe it's possible, except I lived in places where I probably ate less than some of the places I traveled to. <laughs> um, so we, you know, you have to plan. I remember there was like distinctly, there was one time we were driving and we were literally in the middle of nowhere. Gavin was on the way to his next job. And you have to understand, this is like pre-internet, pre-everything. We're very cut off from Jewish life and we're busy driving and Gavin goes, oh my God, it's Shavuot tonight. And Shavuot was like a two-day hike. Mm -hmm. And we were like, we were literally in the middle of nowhere. We like pulled into the first town and there really wasn't much to eat. I think we ate Kellogg's cereal and peanut butter. And I don't actually know what we ate, but I remember being really, really hungry. And we just pulled into the first town and there was like two days. Um, and we're like, okay, but I'll never forget that Shavuot. My children have heard these stories and they know how important it was to us that it didn't matter what. We stopped in the middle of nowhere, stayed in the most disgusting place and ate peanut butter and Kellogg's, but we kept Shavuot. So you then go from all these remote places to probably the exact opposite coming to New York, <laughs> you said, for 15 years. So how does that change how easy it is to access the whole Jewish infrastructure? And do kids come into the picture at this point? Where, where does that happen? So I think for me, we had gone from these outback places and then we'd moved to Gold Coast where we had become more involved in community because there was actually something called community. And then we'd moved to Sydney and we were running and we actually were Asia Tora Australia. And I was really, really scared to move to New York because I understood how little there was in Australia and I was traveling around, I was going to different cities, especially that were underserved with their Jewish populations. And I really felt like I had a mission. I finished my MBA, I, didn't, I got an offer a job in a bank and I delayed it just so I could be on this mission to bring Judaism to the Jews, I guess. And I went to speak to the Rosh Hashiva of Asia Torah and I said to him, you know, my husband has this job offer and we have this opportunity to move to New York and I didn't want to go. And he just laughed and he's like famous for his like Father Christmas style, like laugh. And he said, you think there's nothing for you to do in New York City? <laughs> he's like, there is so many Jewish people who need you in New York City. I didn't really understand what that meant. But there were two things that happened to me. One was I'd been in New York exactly a week and <laughs> I was actually devastated moving to New York and I felt like I had this purpose and this mission in Australia. And I moved to New York and my father happened to come visit the first week we were in New York. 
and I was like telling him how I didn't want to be there and I'm so lonely and I had so much purpose in Australia and my father's very outgoing guy and we happened to walk into a Jewish bookstore. I was on the phone and he went to the attendant who was working there and he said, you know, you look about the same age as my daughter and she just moved here and she's so lonely. Can you please be her friend? And I, of course, nearly died when I found out he did this. But the next day, this girl called me and she invited me to meet her for dinner. And it was at a kosher restaurant in 72nd Street. I was sitting in the restaurant and this guy, Steve Eisenberg, walked in. And she said, do you know who Steve Eisenberg is? I'd heard his name because he was legendary on the Upper West Side and he had also been involved with Asia Torah at some level. And I knew that he was famous for teaching Torah classes and connecting young Jewish people. And Steve walked to our table and she introduced us. And then Steve asked me a question that he's most famous for. He always sees young people and he says, what are you doing this Shabbat? And he sets them up with families. So he said to me, what are we doing? And I was like, I don't know. Like I've been here a week. I don't know anyone here. And he said, you have to come to a family. I'm going to introduce you to them. So my husband and I came to this family. And at the meal, I was like, wow, I'd like to host guests. You know, in Australia, we had always hosted um, in the Gold Coast and in Sydney. So I said, Steve, you know, I would love to be someone who also hosted guests. So he said okay, sounds great. Can I just check? Are you guys like kosher and Shomer Shabbat? So once he got over that and he was like, okay, we met his approval. He said, so how many guests would you host? And I guess he was assuming I'd say four, five, eight. I was like, I don't know, 20, <laughs> really? 30, 40. <laughs> so that was how our conversation started. And Steve started sending me guests for Shabbat. And we started connecting regularly. In the interim, I'd been in New York all of three weeks and a friend of mine, someone who we had taken on a fellowships program for Asia Toro when we were living in Australia, was doing his MBA at Columbia University. And he contacted me and he said, you know, Jody, I know you guys host these big meals. There's a lot of foreign MBA students who are at Columbia who don't have anywhere to go for Rosh Hashanah. Would we consider hosting them for a meal? And I had 36 people from 30 countries come to the meal. And I had an epiphany right there and then. I saw like when the Rosh Yeshiva said, you think there's no <laughs> role for you? I saw right there and then there was an opportunity to connect these like young Jewish people from all over the world who didn't have any community. They didn't have family to go back to. And that was when I started running events. And I started running Shabbat dinners. And first I did a Shabbat dinner for South Africans. And then I did one for Commonwealth countries. And then I did one for internationals. And Steve came back into the story then because I had booked a Shabbat dinner one week. And of course, I was probably so new to New York, I didn't realize how last minute people could possibly be in signing up for events. And I'd paid for this and it's all on my back. I'm not an organization. And I just didn't have enough people signed up. And Steve called me asking me if I'd host guests and I burst into tears. And I was like, I don't know what to do. I haven't got enough people. And he's like, don't worry. I know lots of internationals from all around the world. And he brought people to the meal. And that was our first combined Jody <laughs> Steve event. And it's a partnership that's been going for 21 years. So Steve and I are partners in what's now called the Jewish International Connection. And we have, you know, we have <laughs> events in Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, New York, and Steve recently moved to Miami and Miami wow, as so well. Tell me a little bit more about that organization. And then let's go back into your story about having kids and raising a family in that time period. So our organization, before COVID, we were having about 10,000 people a year coming through the door to about 300 events. We have people from over 40 countries joining our events. And we have 
Torah classes. Steve has been teaching since I invited him to teach a Torah class in my house on a Monday night in 2000. He's been teaching a Monday night Torah class that was definitely been the most popular young professional Torah class consistently. Um, and we now have his class on Zoom as well as in person. We have Torah classes, in fact, tonight, like in Jerusalem, every week in my home here. We have Shabbat dinners, which are often Shabbat dinners by countries for South Africans living in New York or in Israel. We have New Olim Shabbat dinners in Israel, or we'll have like a Russian Shabbat dinner. Last week we had a concept, Shabbat with friends, where different families hosted people, they met for dessert. So always different kinds of Shabbat programs, lots of learning programs. We do a lot in the dating area. Not only do we have dating events where singles can meet, but we really believe in providing the workshops and classes that can help people be successful in their dating and not only be successful in their dating, but be successful when they, in fact, get married. Um, and we recently just celebrated our 135th couple that we know of wow. that met through the JSE. And lastly, we also take heritage trips. We've taken trips to like Poland and Morocco, Berlin. Right now, I'm actually working with Justify, an organization where we're hoping to plan a trip to India in February and we had a few trips that were cancelled last year in the summer but we're hoping to have our Cuba trip back on and our Lithuanian Belarus heritage trip back on the schedule as soon as it's clear which countries are open and when. So I have to just say that I'm thinking back to the answer you gave earlier about goals that you and your husband had when you got married and Couples make a lot of goals on wedding night and when they're newlyweds, but I've never met someone who took one of their goals as far as you have from starting with this idea that we want to have an open home and host guests. Even if you just had a family every other week would be viewed as accomplishing something. You have gone uh, light years beyond that with what your organization is doing. I would probably say someone recently asked me and I tried to work out, but, and again, BC, because I haven't been doing as many big events since before COVID, but I would say that in about 20 years, we hosted at least 20,000 Shabbat guests. Unbelievable. That's not counting people in events outside our home and not counting Torah classes and other social events that happened. I'm talking about purely Shabbat guests. Well, those who are good so at yeah, math. I've really, I've, really <laughs> held, I've really held to it. I was just thinking if you're uh, having 30 or 40 per meal, people can do the math on uh, how many meals you'd have to have to get to 20,000 guests. So it's truly impressive. So now take me back to the New York time and beginning to have a family and, and that part of your story. So we moved to New York in 2000. We clearly just hit a niche with the idea of reaching internationals. And we had a full home all the time. We were famous for moving our furniture into the hallway so we could fit the guests in. We had a home where the doorman, because in New York you usually have doorman in your building, they would just see religious people walk in or Jewish-looking people walk in. There were other people in the building that were actually Jewish and hosting guests, mm -hmm. but they would just say, 4A, 4A, <laughs> and... You know, we never always knew who the guests were who were coming to our house and they'd never necessarily met us before. And about halfway between in the meal, they'd be like, you guys are not the Pullmans <laughs> or the... And we'd be like, you know, they were going to another family. We didn't know who we were expecting. So we really, really, truly had an open home in that sense. Um, I mean, a cute story that I think illustrated... After about living in the building for about four or five years, one of the doormen in my building said to me, I know what you do. He had like seen the groceries come in and out, the people come in and out, the deliveries. He's like, you run a soup kitchen for juice. <laughs> so, so I was like, okay, sort of a spiritual soup kitchen, maybe. <laughs> well, okay. So, so then you start, you have kids beginning in New York or you already had kids before you got there? No, so we had our son was born in New York in 2002, and then we had a daughter in 2004. And I would say my journey really changed a lot because up until then, we were this family with an open home, like literally our door was always open, we were like Grand Central Station, 
people would have called us pillars of the community and we had these cute kids and everybody would be like, when we grow up, we want to be just like the Samuels. And in 2008, Kayla was born and a doctor walked into the hospital room and he said the words that would change our lives. And he said, Mrs. Samuels, did you do genetic testing? And that was part two of the journey. <laughs> right. So what was the information you got then after being asked that question? He asked us if we did genetic testing and I sat bolt upright. I'd had a cesarean and I was in pain and I knew what he was going to say. About six weeks before she was born, I had a mother's intuition that something was wrong. And I came home and I told Gavin something's wrong. And, you know, he's a doctor. And if it doesn't like exist with evidence and double blind studies and proof, then it doesn't exist. And he's like, everything's fine. All your tests are fine. And I was like, I don't know, autism doesn't show up. There's so many things that don't show up on a scan. And I just knew something was wrong. And I went, I made him come with me to the OBGYN and I was crying and she's usually so stoic. She said, Mrs. Samuels, you're usually so stoic. I don't understand. There's no cause for concern. When they were prepping me for the cesarean, I wasn't praying like, God, please give me a healthy baby. I was like, God, please give me the strength to deal with what comes my way. Kayla was born. She was fine. Gavin, who's trained in obstetrics as part of your training in South Africa, nobody saw anything. We had sent out an email to our database saying, mom and baby doing well. And the doctor said, we think she has Down syndrome. And in that moment, my world changed because... I didn't have to be educated what Down syndrome was. I knew what it was. I have a first cousin with Down syndrome mm -hmm. in the 70s when she was born. She was put in an institution. And I had absolute terror. I was, you know, how am I going to be this person who travels all over the world? I was going to be on the front page of Fortune and Forbes and, you know, Business Week. And I haven't made it yet. I was like, how am I going to be this hostess and host all these guests in my home? And I was like, what does it mean for my marriage? What does it mean for my children? And I had a real, f I was terrified. I mean, I went into the restroom and I looked in the mirror and it was like the only place I could be alone with my thoughts. And I had to have this real honest conversation. And firstly, I was Imagine if I have an open home and like literally an open home that everybody comes in, the lost, the lonely, the searching, those looking to get married, those who are bored, those with nothing better to do and everything in between, yet I can't accept my own child, then I felt like my life's a lie. I'd also had two miscarriages between Kayla and my other daughter, Tamira, and I just had this clear feeling that God wanted me to have this neshama, this child was meant to be for me and not another one. And I had to ask myself, who do I want to be? What kind of person do I want to be? What kind of parent? What do I want to achieve in my life? And I came out and I said to Gavin, I don't want us to be the victims. We have to be the victors in the situation and we have to control the message. We sent out another email to the whole database, except this time, instead of mom and baby are doing fine, we said we found out that our princess has challenges, but for us, she will always be our princess. And, <laughs> you know, that's where the journey took off. <laughs> that's a beautiful way to put it, and, and the honesty that you had with all these relationships that you had made over the years. Did you then end up making changes to the open home and the travel and I would imagine you're now having to have a period of time where you're focused on raising your daughter and educational challenges and things like that. No, nope. wrong person, wrong person. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, in fact, I was actually just telling someone this story last night, but Kayla was born on the Monday. We got the diagnosis on the Wednesday. I left the hospital on Thursday and Friday was Shabbat across America which is one of our biggest signature events in New York. And we usually host about 150 people at different families and we all meet up for dessert reception and we have events that whole Shabbat. And I was adamant I was still having my Shabbat program. And in spite of still recovering from a cesarean and finding out the diagnosis, 
I had 50 people <laughs> wow. on a Friday night and I had 30 people for lunch and I continued and I've been continuing ever since. So my kids don't know any reality but having <laughs> Shabbat guests. So I also find interesting that when you hear stories of someone either, you know, God forbid, losing a child or having someone born with a disability, they, in addition to the challenge of raising them, they may question their faith. And, you know, you said this was the neshama that Hashem wanted you to have, but other people could say, this doesn't, if I'm going to be an observant person, I'm doing all the right things, why would I be in this situation? They start questioning the, the path that they're on. Did you have any of those pieces going on or no? Absolutely. So it wasn't like, I mean, yes, on one level, I walked out and I was very proud and I put on a smile. But absolutely, there were many times. I remember going away shortly afterwards. She was born in February and Pesach was in April. And we were good. We'd go on these long hikes. We love being in the outdoors. And I just remember being like, God, why us? You know, we the family that do so much and we could impact people and of all people, why us? Why, why, why? But Gavin is always much more rational than me when I'm very much more, I'm a girl, I'm very emotional. And he would be like, you know, sometimes we just have to say not why, but how are we going to deal with it? And that was the voice that guided me. How am I going to deal with this instead of the why? So it did take a while. I I was definitely angry and I was definitely scared and terrified and freaked out. There were some very significant people who helped me in my journey who gave me perspective and I thank them for that because without that I think I would have been much more lost. But I remember we were going to Israel in the summer and I was going to go to the Kotel because I was going to have a conversation with God and I don't know why, like, you could have a conversation always but I was going to go to, like, as Gavin would say, the head <laughs> office. And I was going to say, like, why us? And I remember, like, planning the conversation. And by the time I got there, she was, like, six months old. And I didn't have to have that conversation with God. Like, I was, like, okay with where I was. I had clearly had come to some ter terms of acceptance. And it's still hard. I still have my moments like, it's not easy. It doesn't ever get easier when you have a child with a disability. But I don't believe that I've ever had this, like, woe-be-me attitude. And maybe that's just my personality. But definitely having, like, a sense of perspective and Jewish guidance and Gavin being strong helped channel me in a direction. And then I know you mentioned you did 15 years in New York, but one of your other marital goals was to ultimately get back to Israel. So, and I know you're talking to me from Israel, so there must be some point where you, you make that transition. <laughs> yep. So, you know, what happened was from having to maybe possibly being a caravan kid living in the hilltops somewhere outside of Hebron to realizing actually that's not me, I said to Gavin, he made me a princess and I was happy to be a princess in Manhattan. And we used to go to Israel every summer and I thought that was the perfect life, you know, perfect Jewish life on the Upper West Side of New York and go to Israel in the summer and maybe another time. Yeah, I was like living as far as I was concerned, the Jewish dream. Gavin really wanted to move out of Manhattan. He had had enough. Sometimes people just like have enough of living in shoeboxes and whatever comes with living in Manhattan. And he wanted to move to the suburbs go to the suburbs for Shabbat and I'd get like heart palpitations. <laughs> I'd be like, oh my God, what do people do here? How am I going to survive Shabbat, let alone the rest of my life here? And we went to Israel in the summer. We were here in 2014. And that was when there was the missiles, Tsuketan, um, Operation Cast Iron. And it was also when those three boys were kidnapped. And it was a very, very, very intense time in Israel. And there were like two moments that just moved me so much. One was, I remember they had this massive call for prayer at the Kotel. And I went to the Kotel and I was like, wow. It was like a cross-section of people. It wasn't just religious people, it was secular people. Everybody was praying for the release of these three boys. And I remember thinking, I just want to be in a more meaningful society. Mm. And the second thing that happened was, Israelis are like soccer mad. And 
the missiles are coming down. I remember that 10 o'clock Jerusalem had their first missile. 11 o'clock was like the quarterfinal of the game. Everybody was out on the street watching the game. A few nights later, there were still missiles. And I'm out on Ben Yehuda Street with my kids. And every, like, you know, downtown area, every bar has huge screens out. And there's hundreds of people watching. And I don't know which, I'm not so into soccer. I was just there for the vibe. I can't remember which game or quarterfinal, semifinal, finals. But it was some big game going on. And there were thousands of people on the street. And it was just like incredible, incredible party vibe. And the next thing, a message came on the screen. And this message came and I said to my son, what did it say? And he said, they found the bodies of those three boys. And all the screens went off and the entire party atmosphere changed to mourning. And I remember thinking, I want to live in a society where like valuing life and then valuing life when someone dies again is what I want my children to experience. And it was like, percolated in my head and a few weeks later I said to Gavin you know what I think we should make Aliyah which was not what he was expecting I would say and we started talking about it we came back from New York we put our kids in school we did what all good Americans Jews do we went to Costco and we did this like huge shop after the summer and it was like just a series of things. We went to see the Aliyah Shaliyah and the Aliyah Shaliyah said, yeah, it would like take six months and whatever. And then I spoke to people and they said, you have a child with special needs. It's really important that she comes at a younger age to learn the language. Let her go to kindergarten where she can learn it as an immersion language. I sent a message to a friend who at the time was just very connected with the Jewish agency. I said, do you have any contacts to expedite our you know, situation, she said, send me the information, we approve for Aliyah the next morning. And they said, we can go pick up the visas. We picked up the visas, and this is now on the Thursday, and Rosh Hashanah was on the Sunday night. And on the Friday, we were like, well, everybody told us nothing happens in Israel to Achrei Chagim. If you ever live in Israel, nothing happens until after the high holidays. And now that I've lived here, I know it's true. They said, it doesn't matter if your kids start afterwards. And we're like, well, if we're going to do it, then maybe we should just do it now. So I decided, well, we're not making Aliyah. We'll just come for a year. And we'll see if it works, and then we'll make a decision. So we decided, we told everyone on the Friday. And then Rosh Hashanah was like the Sunday, and we left the day after Yom Kippur. So after 23 years of talking about it, in about two weeks, we had packed up and left. Well, we left our apartment in New York because I was coming back. I was only coming for a year. And we left and we came to a furnished apartment in Israel. And guess, like my one-year plan in New York turned into 15 <laughs> years. So far, my one-year plan in Israel and I've been here seven. Wow. And are you still doing the same thing now in Israel with the open home and the hosting guests? That part came from New York and continued in Israel? Yeah. So... Uh, you know, there were two parts because as soon as we arrived, well, <laughs> firstly, people said to me, what's going to happen to New York? Seniors, I was the main volunteer and I've always done this in a volunteer capacity. I don't get paid. And they were like, who's going to do New York? And I'm like, New York's not going to stop. So right from the beginning until COVID and now I'm back in that format, I could go back to New York pretty much one week a month or one week and five. And I keep the show afloat there. So New York's pretty much been going continuously. And then I moved to Jerusalem. And the first night I was there, someone came to drop off stuff for us. And I said, what happens for the Worldwide Shabbat Project, which was the next week? And she said, nothing. I was like, how's it possible? Like 400 cities participate. And South Africans, you know, the, in the Worldwide Shabbat Project started in South Africa. And I thought it was this like most amazing concept. And I couldn't believe Jerusalem. The eternal capital of the Jewish people is not doing something. <laughs> She's like, yeah, you know, they don't really need anything in Jerusalem. So that was like the Thursday. And my kids were starting school on the Sunday. I woke up really early that morning and I sent an email to every single person I knew who lived in Israel and Jerusalem. And I said, let's do something for the Shabbat project. Mm -hmm. And no one replied. And I kept pressing send and receive just in case my emails hadn't gone through. And eventually one other friend answered me and she herself was also a new 
a line, new immigrant. She said, sure, let's do something. Anyway, we started planning. We landed up getting the first station in Jerusalem. We did a challah bake there. 600 women showed up. And on the Friday night, we did a young professional dinner. And then we did a Havdalah concert for 300 people. And that was pretty much like in the first 10 days of arriving in Israel. And I guess I grew my database to like over a thousand people in the first week. And the JSC in Israel was born and pretty much been going ever since. So it didn't really take time until it took off straight away. (laughs) You know, of all the people I've met, and many of them have the goal of writing a book about their life story, yours had enough twists and turns that I'm not surprised to find out that it found its way (laughs) into a book. So tell me about that. So I'd been writing a very popular blog for a long time called Metro Ema, and people had said, oh, you should write a book, you should write a book. It was actually on my bucket list of things to do. When I made Aliyah, I had like on my calendar, Mondays and Wednesdays were upon, Tuesdays and Thursdays I was writing the book. And I started writing the book, and it came out in Corona in the midst of a pandemic. And it really is a real life, honest, emotional story about Jody and the life lessons we learned along the way and how like Torah values shaped my decisions and about coming to a conclusion that life doesn't have to be perfect to be wonderful because of all the lessons that Kayla has taught me. And share the name of the title so our listeners can find the book. <laughs> so it's called Chutzpah, Wisdom and Wine, The Journey of an Unstoppable Woman. So speaking of being unstoppable, with everything that you've accomplished, I imagine you're not done yet. So what what's on your bucket list for the next two to three years? What else are you looking to accomplish? My to-do list is so long that I have to, like <laughs> part of my challenge is trying to figure out. But I very much have this vision of where JIC can be bigger, better, reach more people. I see the demand. I see that people, whether they're new to a place, whether it's in Israel, whether it's in New York, Steve's now in Miami, where all these young professionals have moved, there's this need for people to have this Jewish home away from home. And I have this vision of expanding my model and reaching more people and making it more scalable. And I would like to write another book, maybe Raising Kayla and the specific lessons on a child with disability. But I also really have this mission. I wrote the book not just because I wanted to write a book, but I feel like I have a voice and I have a mission because I feel like I'm on a mission to change the world. And I know I can't change the world, like the whole world, but I want to change the world in my own little way. And, you know, one of the reasons I'm happy to do this podcast and that is I really want to get my voice out there because I want to share some of my message and hopefully help people on their journeys. So that's my three main goals for the next few years. (laughs) I have a funny feeling you're going to accomplish about 15 more beyond that, but just doing those would be an amazing start. So before I let you go with all of our guests, we'd like to close with the lightning round. So I'm going to ask you five super fast questions. Are you ready? Sure. Okay. Question number one of all the places you traveled around the world, what's the coolest place you visited? So my whole family will unanimously say India. We just love India the most. We've been there three times. All right. And what's the most interesting kosher food you got to eat in all these remote places you traveled to? Hmm. That's an interesting one. Um, Probably, I don't know if I would say it was interesting because it was delicious. It was interesting because it was definitely food that was unusual. But probably one of our meals in the Chabad house in Armenia with these real, real Armenians. It was an interesting experience with really interesting food. (laughs) It was definitely an unusual. What's an example of something they served? I couldn't exactly tell you what I was eating. (laughs) That was part of the problem. I just know we were like starving kosher travelers. So we were willing to try everything, even if I wasn't sure what I was eating. Fair Mm. enough. And so with all this travel that you do, I imagine you should have a top tip for someone who wants to travel on a budget. Just do it. (laughs) You know, you've got to just have realistic expectations. You're not going to go and have five-star meals cooked. You have to expect that you're going to live on avocados and cans of tuna, and your accommodation isn't going to be perfect. And But that's the adventure. You know, the adventure comes from the unknown, and 
that's what makes it different because every Sheraton and Hilton looks the same. It's that adventure. And when you travel on a budget, you get to meet people and it's a people travel and a people experience because there's many people like you and it's usually much more communal experiences that you go through. And it's truly an amazing experience. And it's also just a very powerful opportunity to leave your comfort zone and see the world through a different set of eyes. Okay, and as someone who now lives in Israel, what's the best place to visit in Israel besides the Kotel for someone who wants to feel inspired, optimistic, upbeat? I just find that Tzfat for me is the place that talks to my soul. It's got the mixture of you know, religious heritage, mystical heritage, the musical feeling, and there's just a vibe alive on the street. Beautiful. And last question. Uh, someone who's as busy as you, if you found yourself with an hour free and you could attend a shear or listen to one online, who's your go-to person to listen to? So my mentor for me, my parenting mentor and my relationship marriage counselor is Slavi Wolf, Reverend Young Rice's daughter. And I feel like when I hear her speak, a lot of times I come out of sheer rim and I'm like, that was amazing. I learned something, but I can't really recall it. I feel like Slavi sharpens me as a parent and as a wife and as a community professional. And when I'm in these moments, I hear her voice and she has influenced so much of my thinking. So I would choose to listen to her. Fair enough. Jody. you are officially out of the lightning round, and I want to thank you so much for joining me on Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you, Jeff. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our executive producer is Rabbi David Pardo. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit tachlismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at tachlismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.